Hello and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University. I am joined in person in the flesh by my co-hosts, Sarah Bae Jung of York University. Sarah, it's nice to record with you in the same contiguous space and auditory and optical medium. Uh, How is it for you? Well, you know, I I have ambivalence towards liveness panel, but yes, very happy to see you and great to welcome Elizabeth. Yes, indeed. And we are joined also by Elizabeth Hunter of San Francisco State University, substituting for Harvey Young, and we are very glad to have her. Professor Hunter examines spectatorship in theater and new media, especially augmented reality, mixed reality, and games. She directs the Fabulab Theater and Technology Project, which has generated some amazing things, holographic representations of the Agamemnon story, a video game adapted from the Norwegian invasion recounted in Macbeth, um, amazing research. We were really excited that you were available and, and wanted to, to sit in Harvey's chair for this podcast. So welcome to On Tap. Thank you. It's, you know, it's it's a little tall, the chair for me, so I'll, I'll lower it. <laughs> if it's a tall chair, well, it's, I mean, I don't know, because Harvey is a tall man. Yes. Um, the chair is usually actually very short so that he can get up to the microphone. We're really glad to have you here. Um, we are in Arlington, Virginia. We are in the conference hotel. We have commandeered a special space on the 14th floor of the hotel called the Club Lounge. Yeah, with a lovely uh, view of the airport. There's a view of the airport. Yeah, really you can great. see the Capitol building from that direction also. So there's a little bit of history. Oh, there you go. Yeah, they, they called this hotel the Capitol View, and they could have called it the Airport View, yeah. but if you really look off into the distance, you can see the, the, the capital of this nation. So not too bad. I will also, I shouldn't point this out, but this is the 14th floor, but this is one of those hotels where they don't put a 13th floor so guess what floor this really is 13th floor bum 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 dun 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 <laughs> there you go so listeners on the podcast today we have three topics of conversation we are excited to get to we read Sharon Marcus's new book The Drama of Celebrity uh, a new title out from Princeton University Press about the features of modern celebrity as a cultural phenomenon uh, Sarah Bernhardt many other things we are going to talk about meritocracy in higher education Education and in theater and performance studies in particular. Uh, we read a um, forum piece in the Chronicle Review on meritocracy and have been um, uh, scavenging around the internet to figure out what we think about the latest round of critiques of the meritocracy. And we're going to talk about Aster 2019. We are recording on Saturday morning, so we're kind of halfway through the conference and and cannot you know adequately pronounce judgment on the entire thing because it's ongoing, but we've seen some sessions and we want to just check in with each other about how the conference is going. So before we get to those topics, uh, we do some news roundup. I don't have a lot here this week on the job market. I, I don't know if I said this on the podcast, but I had the sense maybe in September that this was shaping up to be kind of a 
meager year in terms of job postings. Um, but since that time, uh, a lot of jobs have emerged. So I've, I've gotten the sense anecdotally, not having done a sort of audit, but um, uh, looking at the wiki and, and talking to people, I get the sense that actually this year there are a fair number of good and interesting jobs out there. So for, for colleagues on the job market, um, uh, maybe, some, maybe some reason for optimism this year. So we read Sharon Marcus's book, The Drama of Celebrity. Um, um, I have been excited to check this out, partly because Sarah Bernhardt was a major part of this book, and I'm a, I have more than a casual interest in uh, Sarah Bernhardt. She's one of my favorite figures from uh, theater history. But it's a very interesting book. There's a lot going on here methodologically and in terms of the argument and the sources that Sharon Marcus looked at. Um, Elizabeth, what do, you, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think of this book? How was, how, was, how was reading it for you? What did it provoke in your mind? I thought this book was great. And I, I thought on a, a few different levels, not only in terms of its content, um, but also as somebody who's writing her first book right now, uh, which is me. Um, <laughs> it was it's such a, it's just a masterclass in how to lay out an argument um, and then restate your argument and make it absolutely crystal clear. Um, so much so that I, I found myself um, kind of deceived sometimes by how much work is underneath the argument that Marcus is making here. Um, but when you go back into the footnotes and really start drilling down into how she's um, laying out this work, it's like, wow, this is, uh, this is rigorous. Um, so it's, it, it's excellent. I mean, I, I think one of the things that is interesting about this project is that, and she, she kind of says this, um, that unlike, so I'm quoting here, uh, quote, unlike most histories of celebrity culture, which focus on change over time, this book highlights continuities, features that have held more or less steady for nearly two centuries, their lease on life renewed with each media revolution, end quote. Mm -hmm. And that notion of instead of looking at, oh, big change, um, here are features that we can look back for 200 years and see have always been the same. And those mm -hmm. features are that celebrities created by um, the contributions of the celebrities themselves, mm -hmm. the public, and the press, all in this kind of three-part, mm -hmm. um, not struggle, but three-part drama to see who's going to be a celebrity and who's not. And there's not really any way to predict ahead of time who's going to hit. And that's what makes it so compelling to watch. Mm-hmm. She sort of sets up the, I don't know, past scholarship in celebrity studies that has emphasized the media and entertainment industry. So, the, you know, the Frankfurt School and Adorno uh, writing in the 1940s saw an industry where uh, or saw a, a sort of state of affairs where the entertainment industry itself is just producing these celebrities and foisting them on the public. You have um, other sources, I think Joe Roach would fall into this category, that have credited the individuals, right? The celebrities themselves are just so inherently interesting and fascinating that um, they sort of, either through their own inherent qualities or their extremely sophisticated ways of manipulating um, the public and the industry become celebrities through the force of their own agency or um, uh, theories that overemphasize in Marcus's mind the ways that celebrities are kind of, I don't know, crystallizations or symbols of, uh, I don't know, conscience collective or some mm -hmm. sort of broad public shared fantasy. So in her mind, it's it's a kind of 
none of these three entities pr predominate over the others, and there's this constant battle and, and sort of collaboration among them. So it's a, I think that's a fairly compelling argument. I, I, I think, I don't know, I have, I have maybe as um, someone sympathetic to certain Frankfurt School views, I feel like the project is, it's a little bit insufficiently historical materialist. I want the kind of, you know, nitty gritty analysis that would, um, undermine or confront um, a, a Marxist interpretation of the culture industry. I mean, she hangs her hat on the notion that it's unpredictable. And you can see, I think this is actually a very powerful insight. Like in the 21st century, you no longer have cultural monopolies or uh, uh, major shares of cultural influence controlled by a few different um, entities. And so the internet, for example, allows celebrities to pop up from outside the culture industry. And so it's, you're back in her interpretation to the more anarchic situation of the 19th century. Um, so I think that that's a pretty compelling argument, but I still think that the, um, you know, celebrities are consumer products. I don't, I don't, I think it's a mistake to think of there being complete um, uh, equality among these three different entities and no dominant force in it. I don't know that she's making the argument that they're equal forces. I mean, I think I, what I took from the book was that she's, she's tracing how at any given moment one of these three is, asserts itself over the other two, but that mm. there's not one um, that is exclusively responsible for um, who is or isn't a celebrity. And she, she kind of uses differences in um, technological delivery systems as a way of thinking through, well, it looked like at the beginning of um, you know, YouTube, there was a possibility for democratization of, you know, um, you know, Francine from down the street could make herself a celebrity thanks to this new tool of YouTube, but that that was a fleeting, um, that was a fleeting opportunity that then as that kind of democratized media system became more controlled, um, that that opportunity for to be a self-made celebrity kind of went away. So. I, I mean that that was my impression of what she's doing is is using um, using this three part system and the way it is kind of like now this if you think about it like a Venn diagram now this globe over here is in control but these other two are still impacting it and some of that change is based on new opportunities uh, through technology. I, I would ag I would agree with that. I mean I think that what what she's talking about basically is a kind of ongoing tension among among three forces but i would argue and i maybe i just understood it differently than you did panel i understood that as all situating within uh what what horkheimer and adorno would call the culture industry right mm -hmm. but it is not a monolithic assertion of culture industry as rooted and based solely in a kind of corporate structure, mm -hmm. but is rather the product itself of competing forces, both market and technological, um, and I guess a kind of tripart, you know, also rooted in, in actual people, both creators and consumers um, at any given moment, and that, that that's the kind of flux. I mean, and in terms of historical materialist culture, I think her kind of deep dive into, and, and her kind of, you know, her particular technique of looking at things like scrapbooks and mm -hmm. uh, material culture created in and 
a kind of subsidiary or ancillary to the major kind of circulation of cultural products and how those become acts of imitation. And right. I mean, I found her chapter on multiplication, right? That celebrity as a kind of proliferating of self through products. So I, I don't know yeah. that I saw it as, as completely outside Frankfurt School stuff, but, but simply a complication and an elaboration of it. I think that's fair. I think perhaps I'm overstating the extent to which she just dispenses with these interpretations as wrong and insignificant. There's a sort of rhetorical gesture she'll return to in the chapters, which is, you know, it's very common to think of celebrity as this, of the of the public as being these sort of passive drones who um, aren't critical and, and just, ex, you know, sort of uh, idol, idolize these figures put in front of them. But in fact, if you look at this, that's it's more complicated. And I think there are moments when, you know, it's the book, I would say, is aimed at a general audience. It's academically rigorous, but it I think it's meant to be a sort of crossover between an academic title and a trade book. So I feel as though partly she's in uh, wanting the book to be accessible to a general readership and she's not going to get into, you know, block quotes from Adorno. Um, and as a consequence, you get the I, what I think are kind of dismissive gestures about how you know, unsophisticated that reading is. I think you're right that that she acknowledges there's a culture industry. She ignore, she acknowledges that there are market forces, um, and wants to complicate things. But I, I'll 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 keep on to this assertion, which is that I think the way the introduction poses this, it's the the takeaway is sort of. It's unpredictable. There, you know, it's always interesting because you never know who's going to oh, predominate, and that to me is not okay. A, yeah. <laughs> yes, but but that's the introduction, right? I mean, yeah. I I think that that does get complicated and taken up and, and worked through pretty rigorously throughout the rest of the book, uh-huh. um, and particularly in 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 some of the footnotes. And I mean, you know, I love a good Adorno block quote as much as anyone, right? <laughs> but I mean, I think I think there is also since we're you know thinking about this book in the context of a conference and sitting in the middle of a conference that is about public-facing scholarship and, and theater's many publics. And I, I think the idea of making some of this work and, and ideas, again, from the Frankfurt School um, or, you know, what Joe Roach is working through in it and, and other, and, and even Sarah Bernhardt, more accessible and kind of working it through in a way that has relevance and engagement for a broad audience. I mean, as an academic, I learned a lot reading this book. Oh, sure. Um, uh, As as someone who had my own mind kind of blown by Richard Dyer back in the day, right, of the star, his analysis of stars, which I... Uh, which I really loved. I found this as a kind of return to that moment really invigorating. And the idea that that other people could read it, I found to be one of the book's real strengths and value. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I didn't mean to knock it for being accessible. Um, uh, and there there are really interesting um, methodological features to it. The, the scrapbooks themselves, like they, she has found these archival sources that I think are easy to dismiss, but individual consumer or fans, you know, pasted scrapbooks with photographs and quotes and and bits of programs and and news clippings dedicated to stars that really show in a detailed way um, how fans engage in uh, critical and creative responses to celebrities. And so they're neither, they, you know, I think her conclusion in that chapter is that the 
the fans, the typical fans, yes, there are crazy people who are obsessed with these stars and celebrities, and then there are certainly people who, for whom they're not interested or they're, they sort of passively receive and are easily manipulated, but then there's this kind of uh, middle ground or middle experience where fans engage in a creative um, interpretive practice through these material objects. That's really interesting. Yeah, and she calls that resituation. I thought that mm-hmm. was a really helpful mm-hmm. way to think about, because that transfers also into new media formats. Okay. Of it, She's offering an alternative to what Henry Jenkins talks about in Convergence Culture, um, of fans being kind of prosumers, which is that kind of awkward portmanteau of producer and consumer, mm-hmm. that she's, she's offering an alternative to fans creating something new and saying that takes a substantial dedication and effort. And there's a, this middle ground of folks who will resituate work, which is just moving something, uh, an image of a celebrity from one site to another without substantively um, refiguring it or making a new story out of it. They're just moving it. They're resituating it from its original location, clipping it out of a magazine mm-hmm. or clipping it um, digitally onto you know, your uh, Pinterest page or something like that, that that evidences a different kind of fan engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, that I thought also her reading of the scrapbooks and how she's thinking about multiplication. I loved that chapter. I did that too. chapter was just... I- Great. Uh, multiplication and intimacy, yes. I thought, were stunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just stunning. So uh, if you're only going to read a couple of chapters in this book, skip the introduction. Man. You've already gotten panel from that. Yeah. <laughs> Go right to, to multiplication. multiplication and intimacy. They're, yeah. They really are but it's uh, not, it's, fantastic. Even though she is dealing, I mean, for one thing, she sifted through a ton of material culture in the archives to, to write those chapters. She also read everything about Sarah Bernhardt, um, and that's one of the, uh, you know, real, really great things about the book in my mind, because Sarah Bernhardt, if you're not familiar with her career, um, you will is be. A fa- <laughs> you, you absolutely will be, and she read all the biographies and, and sort of synthesizes things and, and, and puts, brings to the fore so many great images and anecdotes and stories about her as a sort of exemplar of modern celebrity um, and a demonstration of the way some of these patterns recur. So, yes, absolutely. And it, it's not, and so for all that work in academic rigor, it's not, it's a, it's a brisk read. It's not something where you're, I feel like you're going to, you know, get bogged down in the introduction and not want to go forward. I feel like some of that was also structural because she's moving so much of the work into the footnotes. And so if there are various grumpy academics who want to know where the rigor is, they can look in the footnotes and it's all deeply there. But if you want to just read, you know, it's, it's, it's not an airport book, but if you, if you want to read something without getting you know, chained to block quotes from Adorno. It's, there's a way to engage with this book that is, um, that is brisk, but there's also a way to engage with this book that is like mind-blowingly um, rigorous. I, I agree, and I, I, I just want to sort of offer this as a teaser. I think our next T-shirt uh, for the podcast should be, uh, you know, on tap podcast, uh, we're block quotes from Adorno, right? I mean, I, you know, I feel like... <laughs> Can, can it just be covered in block quotes from Adorno? I, yes. I think that it, would. I think that would work. And nothing like a you know a disposable piece of culture like a you know quickly printed T-shirt covered in Adorno quotes. Okay, There's I'm no thinking. Irony to that. I'm thinking uh, <laughs> a, a T-shirt with block quotes from Adorno in which the negative space spells out on tap. Right. Yes. Amazing. Um, Done. Can I, I just graphically say, design that? I just yeah. want to say one 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 last thing of, uh, about this and uh, or. 
I, this will be my last contribution. Other people could say other things. Um, which is that, uh, kind of coming back to Elizabeth's point about, about how the book is constructed and, and its uh, engagement with prose and, and particularly the, the character. Um, and I think it is very much positioned as a character of Sarah Bernhardt here, right? Um, she is a figure, but she is also a kind of recurring uh, leitmotif in and around these questions of celebrity. And, um, and you become very invested, I found, at least for me reading it, front to you know front to back that you become really invested in how she's going to show up again mm-hmm. and what other elements and and one of the things i was talking about in the mentorship session when i was talking to my students about about great writing is that to my mind great writing um ends up feeling inevitable <laughs> um and there's a certain at least this is my personal reaction i always have a moment of jealousy which is like oh oh i could have i could have figured that out um, and and that transparency is actually, to, I think, the product of such rigorous thinking and such uh, refined and elegant prose that the argument is more, you are more led to it with the illusion that you have discovered this yourself mm-hmm. um, rather than you have been, and now I will present. And, and I find that, that in, in Marcus's best moments, that really surges up in which you feel like you are kind of moving through this material, discovering key points and ideas for yourself and coming to these conclusions in ways that feel uh, completely almost inevitable yeah. right it's like oh well of course that's yeah that's i felt happening. smarter reading this book yeah. and then i realized oh it's because she's really smart yeah <laughs> i would i would agree with that there was one other sort of interpretive line that this inspired for me and it was really in combination with richard halpern's excellent book the eclipse of action so bear with me a little bit while i spin this out but um in the uh, defiance chapter this is one that focuses on how celebrities are revered for breaking rules for violating norms that I was thinking about this in concert with Richard Halpern's book because he he makes this very compelling argument that sort of, I don't know, beginning in the 19th century, you get the gradual attenuation of tragedy as a genre. So there's less and less tragedy. Tragedy basically disappears. And his interpretation is that because this is, modernity is the era of political economy, um, basically production displaces action as the hmm. dominant, mind's way of understanding the path to happiness so that before capitalism there's a more uh, prevalent notion that action is the way you create a better life and that after Adam Smith and after political economy in general uh, we all now believe that it's through production that you get a better life and so tragedy falls away but because she brings out and highlights this facet of modern celebrity which is about uh, rule breaking and those sort of defiant actions, it occurs to me that you can think of celebrity as a holdover or realm of action that might exist um, uh, as a kind of complement to the broader culture of production. And so is that all, is it also the case that you can think of the realm of celebrity in its sort of quasi-fictional status as being a realm of tragedy as well, where these, you know, interesting people do things that bring them to people's attention, heroic things or taboo things or, um, you know, actions, sort of, you know, uh, concentrated or significant actions. Um, And so this, I don't know, this is one of the things that the book got me thinking that you could think it would be possible to interpret uh, celebrity as a sort of action realm and a kind of 
tragic realm as well by virtue of that. And certainly people love to watch uh, Tragic Falls. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We love our celebrities to suffer for, yes. their, for their sins. And then to be redeemed. And then to suffer again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, I mean, that goes back to the, the Richard Dyer's uh, observation, which was that, um, uh, and this might even play off of the kind of uh, three-way tension that, that Elizabeth was talking about that Marcus presents in the book, but the... The idea that we want celebrities to be like us and to be above us. Mm-hmm. And so there is a kind of tension in they are closer to us and then we feel mm-hmm. um, proximate, proximity. And, and But then we also become aware of the acute distance in our own. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is my also my relationship to, to the pros, right? And then we become sort of resentful that, well, yeah. I could do that, but I'm not doing that. Yeah. And then we push them away. Um, and then, and then we, you know, resent them for their distance and their, and so then we, we pull them down in some ways, but then in the, in the redemption, we're allowed to feel superior. So there's a whole kind of cycle of, of engagement of proximity. And and this is why I think intimacy and multiplication are the two, for me, the real key chapters, um, particularly around this idea. I mean, there's, there's lots of other great stuff, but is this, this notion of, of that celebrities become celebrities because we feel both close and distant sure. because they are superior and we but we relish moments where they appear to be inferior oh yeah right and 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 then how and that that proximity is always a product of some kind of mediation and that that mediation is always dispersed across multiple cultural forms at any given moment so uh, listeners should should get a copy of the drama of celebrity it's a fascinating book um really well done by sharon marcus um we also wanted to talk about meritocracy so recently the chronicle review published a forum with contributions from several different authors um, including daniel markovitz of yale law school who has a new book called the meritocracy trap that he's been talking about in, in various media outlets this is the sort of I mean, there are different versions of this critique, and actually when you start looking around online for higher education or meritocracy, you find years and years of um, think pieces and essays and critiques of it. Um, But we wanted to talk about it now and talk about our um, sense of how this might shake out in higher education, but also in theater and performance studies. So, um, Sarah, what do you think? What what was your takeaway from this uh, piece on meritocracy, or or what is your sense about how it, 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 it is prevalent in your professional life? Uh, I am struck by, and I think it's it's great that we have these two topics kind of in proximity to each other, the drama of celebrity next to meritocracy, because in some ways they take up very similar kinds of arguments. And one of the, one of the things that I repeatedly kind of come back to as I read pieces on meritocracy or um, more generally, accessibility in the academy, the crisis of, of job accessibility, the excess of labor in the in the job market, um, which of course itself is is, is rather contentious, right? Like, um, if you look at the proliferation of adjunct labor, it's not that we need fewer professors; it's that we are willing to pay less for professors, right? So there's all kinds of um, and I'm no economist, but what appear to be, or what I, and I think other people have argued, are kind of market distortions around this, and particularly tied at the intersection of public and private funding, all of which goes back into the central question that the meritocracy argument takes up, which is, who gets to be in the university? 
And when when the people who were allowed to be in the university were uni- were overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, very wealthy, and um, you know there was a kind of uh, market-based support for how to uh, fund the university, right? It was exclusive in terms of who got in. It was also exclusive in terms of who got to work there. And, and so that just creates a situation in which the funding model is very clear and, and relatively clean. So the real question then that, that gets taken up in the, in the question of meritocracy, right, is an anxiety about now, you know, 50, 60 years later, and I'm thinking kind of post-World War II, right, the GI Bill and a very different image and vision of who gets to be in the university hitting a real kind of crisis point in a couple of different areas, which is that the, the old funding model, right, of money supporting money within a university structure now doesn't work anymore. We also have a crisis of the last 30 years or so of, um, particularly in the United States, decreased public funding um, for higher education. And so the funding model has really profoundly changed. This piece kind of starts from that moment in a real challenge to what is gained and lost by thinking of the university right now as meritocratic. But I think the other, the other really interesting thing to think about is, um, you know, for our own sake, when we're doing auditions or we're doing evaluations for people to get into our programs is how we think about what we're evaluating in that, in that moment as well. Mm-hmm. I think about this um, sometimes with my, my students at San Francisco State University, because um, if, if what Markovitz is talking about here with a meritocracy is that folks are gaining, folks are, are kind of getting those limited positions um, if they are better prepared for them, and the circumstances that lead to somebody being better prepared for them are where those kind of differences in demographics are masked. So I guess if I'm going back to my students, a lot of our students are um, first generation, and a majority of my students in my specific classes um, also, like they have to work outside of mm-hmm. class. And so there's not, the they don't have the means to do, you know, a, a super fantastic internship that can plug them directly into an elite program later right. because they're having to make ends meet in the most expensive real estate market in the whole country. Um, and so by looking at, um, on the admissions side for some of these elite programs, students who just on paper have all of these kind of extra bells and whistles that can be purchased, but that maybe do actually add value to their um, ability to tackle PhD study. So it's not that they're useless bells and whistles, they're relevant bells and whistles, but they were bells and whistles that could be purchased if you had the means. Mm-hmm. And, and not if you, you know, had to go and work a 25, 30, 40 hours um, at the mall because you, um, you needed to make ends meet. I find the critique compelling, but there's sometimes when I can't quite suss out what he thinks is at the core of the problem because sometimes he seems to be talking about hmm. what's happening at institutions like Yale where he is at and where you get the sense of um, hyper-prepared students from very wealthy backgrounds whose parents have sort of, you know, purchased opportunities for them to be trained so that they built, you know, they go to this private high school, they do all these activities, they take, you know, great prep uh, for the SAT and they get in that way. So you could imagine that he would perceive there's an ideal meritocracy where 
those inherited advantages are somehow factored out. And it's really just, you know, the most talented people, if you could somehow get rid of the ways that class advantage and, and, and uh, you know, other sort of factors of privilege enhanced your ability to get in, that you'd have an ideal meritocracy that functioned um, well, but that that's impossible. But then I also think he believes that meritocracy itself more broadly is just pathological. I, he doesn't say this outright, but there's, there's a sort of social critique of meritocracy, even ideal meritocracy, which would say that it's unfair to say that only the most talented people get advantages, right? I mean, people, we, we have unequal talents. Um, so why should it be that you have only the people who get high test scores, even if they come from, you know, even if there's a truly level playing field, we shouldn't have a system that only makes it possible to live if you're extremely gifted, right? Even if there's an ideal meritocracy, what about those of us who are not, right. <laughs> don't have those things, right? It's, it, there's a kind of inequality that even an ideal meritocracy seems to accept as natural and good. And it's really clearly to me, at least just a validating, you know, mindset for inequality in general. Um, but there are times when I can't suss out if Markovitz is talking about he does say at times that there should be a, a, we should shrink the absolute difference in expenditures on education between the very top and the very bottom. You get the sense that he thinks that there should just be a greater distribution of resources to educate everybody, everybody. But um, it's hard for me to understand what he would think about institutions that aren't Yale, right? Um, but that are, you know, I don't know, middle tier schools. Um, does he believe that the critical threshold is getting into college? And if you can get into any, you know, high quality college, then you join the meritocracy? Or is it a more refined and, and sort of rarefied environment where elites are trying to outwork each other, outcompete each other, and and get to the 1%? This is where I'm, I'm a little well, bit I, hazy about yeah, what no, and, and I even, you know, you mentioned, you know, like the, the whole designation of middle tier, right? I mean, I yeah. think that that whole, I mean, if you look at the rankings of universities uh, and how those now get treated uh, by applicants, by their families, by funders, um, you know, it's it's become really powerful. But but what I often say uh, to a, to a lot of people, and and you know, and I'm also the parent of someone who just went through the college system, right? Is that there are good people everywhere, um, and you know. 25 years of a really competitive job market means that there are highly qualified, highly, you know, uh, uh, able, uh, talented faculty everywhere. The difference is in how well those folks are supported or not, and what kind of support you and your classmates are gonna are gonna have. So there's a real material difference between a commuter campus mm -hmm. and a residential campus, between a campus that has put uh, you know, funding and has the resources to invest in, in say, mental health services for, for its students and the counseling center and where those student services are, are more stretched. And I'm, you know, I'm also, the other piece in this Chronicle Review, um, and I think she wrote in the New York Times also, is Caitlin Zalooms. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the Chronicle piece, it's what failure, failure feels like, middle-class families and the hidden injuries of meritocracy. Mm -hmm. and, and so when you don't get into those top schools, or you don't, or you are in a middle tier university, right? Yeah. 
um, we we overwhelmingly, and I and I think we do this as academics also. Um, I think there's a lot of attachment of who we are to the institution, mm-hmm. right? Um, almost whether we want to or not, and um, we can all dismiss right the college rankings. Um, but I think it feels good when you and your school are at the top. Sure. And I think it feels less good when you're not. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think also the the question of plugging into um, you know a kind of super elite one percent space um, doesn't. I think what Markovitz is saying is that it doesn't stop with when you kind of get into the four year environment because there are radiating circles of alumni and um, relationships that would get you an internship and a job and a you know that those kinds of um, extra post-graduation pathways are different based on um, based on, on where you land, I think is what his point is, is that that kind of cycle of um, being able to purchase the kinds of things that can get you into certain spaces just keeps continuing. Well, but he, when you listen to him talk in more extensively, he actually believes that the these people, these elites, are working themselves through there. I mean, I, I don't think he would discount that there are networks that are rooted in, you know, generational wealth transfer and, and a kind of um, elite hoarding of power. But he, part of what's quirky about his argument is that he thinks that these elites are also suffering, right. that they're working 70, 80 hours a week because they're not content to be excellent. They have to be superior. And this, I think, is actually a mindset that filters into sort of higher education administration as well. I remember hearing about, and I don't remember the specifics, but I remember hearing a story about some German professor at a faculty meeting who uh, uh, annoyed everyone by insisting that the goal of that university should be to be a mediocre regional liberal arts institution. And he was serious. And And basically what he was doing was puncturing the balloon that I think a lot of, certainly a lot of American institutions are susceptible to, which is that we have to be in the top 10. We have to be superior we have to be the best it's not sufficient to say we're really good or excellent you have to be and it's I think it's actually a mentality that probably filters down from uh, to us from corporate board meetings where you know the whatever your profit margins are last quarter it's insufficient like how are they going to be more next quarter Mm. right there's a kind of relentless pursuit of being better and better and not just better but but the best even though it's irrational, we can't all be the best. And his argument in, 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 I don't think it was in this piece, but in one of the podcasts is that we should all focus on being excellent, being really good, but stop all trying to be the best and that that is going to make everyone happier. Uh, Kathleen Fitzpatrick in her recent um, book, Generous Thinking, which is uh, deals with higher education, actually has a really wonderful passage where she talks precisely about that and about the competitive mindset in higher education and what it would mean if we let go of training leaders mm-hmm. or the mission that our students are going to lead their various industries and more focus on how we could, um, as educators and, and help our students think about themselves as creative collaborators. And, and that kind of is the underlying theme of this idea of generous thinking, um, which I think is a, for me is a really interesting kind of corollary to this question of meritocracy and its benefits or detriments. Uh, I find that Fitzpatrick sits it in a very different similar kinds of questions, but in a different space that's really helpful to kind of read back into this question. 
Um, so we wanted to also talk about Aster 2019. We are here. Um, it's happening all around us. We're in the middle of it. Um, uh, as perfect disclosure, let me say that I'm one of a four-person team that, that helped plan this. So along with Caritha Mitchell and Brian Herrera and Charlotte Canning, um, I uh, was on the committee that, that planned the conference. So A, you should take what I say with a grain of salt. B, um, you should take what Sarah and Elizabeth say with a grain of salt because I'm sitting right here. Uh, C, when people tell me how they think it's going, they're probably not going to tell me what they think what didn't work out about the conference. But the sense I get is that at least uh, two days in that there have been some great plenary there have been some really um, stimulating sessions uh, around the topic. So public-facing scholarship was one of the ways we um, uh, pursued the, the concept of theaters, many publics. We had a roundtable where um, a, 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 an array of experts and scholars, including our own Sarah Beijung, talked about different um, aspects of the ways that our scholarly activity in theater and performance can connect with a broader public as opposed to just other highly specialized academic entities. Um, that I thought was well received and the um, practice sessions that have uh, uh, sort of spun out from that roundtable um, seem to have drawn some good participants as well. Um, so there's a lot going on. We, we got a sneak peek at the VSpace or VSpace um, VR project to, to bring to life um, a 18th century fairground theater in Paris. We can talk about that, but um, Elizabeth, Sarah, what have you guys seen um, in terms of conference programming that, that made an impression? At this flawlessly planned conference, <laughs> you mean? Yeah, where there, were, there were gluten-free muffins on the muffin cart. Nothing uh, went wrong. And I well, there were for a minute until I took them all. <laughs> um, and nothing went wrong. No, it's, uh, it's been amazing. Um, so yeah, in addition, the vSpace um, preview was fantastic. And I know this won't be um, on air before uh, the end of the conference. Um, so by the time you're hearing our dulcet tones, you have missed it um, at Aster. But if, if it is coming to a, an academic space near you, I would strongly suggest that you check it out. It really is um, really just excellent and important new ground um, being broken with this installation, um, which runs on the HTC Vive uh, virtual reality headset, which is fully visually immersive. So a little bit different from what I work on, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, spatial computing and augmented reality, where you can see the room around you. Mm -hmm. um, this, is, this is a kind of traditional VR if there is such a thing. Uh, oh, point. I think I think VR has been around long been, enough that we right, can since, start talking about traditional VR. Since Renaissance perspectival painting, like I just want to be inside that completely. Yep. Um, so yeah, you put the headset on and then you uh, need somebody to manage the cords so you don't trip on them. Um, but it, it was, it's an architectural um, medium and a spatial medium and the fact that they um, kind of re-envisioned and they were quite uh, upfront about that, but they're not um, attempting to, uh, I don't know, revive an authentic, this is exactly how it was, yeah. um, theater uh, from this time period. They're thinking through what it very likely might have been similar to yeah. using these tools. It was a great matching of content to the technological um, platform that was available or that is available with VR. Yeah, that was, that was one of the debates. So I, I was at a few meetings um, uh, in the early 
planning phases of that project, vSpace. And um, what they ended up doing was taking an image that's from the lid of a snuff box and that shows a puppet theater from the fairgrounds that we don't know that it was an accurate depiction of a real space or an impression or a, a sort of a cobbled together synthetic space. We don't know what the relationship is between that snuff box lid and any real existing historical theater space, but it looks real and as beautifully detailed and so you can now you can walk around inside it in, in, in a VR headset which I think is really really cool um, one of the the interesting things I think about um, VR is that for certainly in its early days it was very much a kind of futuristic technology it was about how to imagine alternate futures and it 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 also kind of signaled especially in the early kind of headsets and, and the way it got absorbed and integrated into popular culture. Um, I'm thinking of like, you know, William Gibson novels, but also Lawnmower Man. Um, do you nice. remember that film? Yes. 1992. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, I think, right? Um, that that it was all about the future. And now, now we actually, in the last few years especially, VR is overwhelmingly focused on the past. Is that right? It's uh, it's it's revisiting things that have existed. It's imagining ourselves in other kinds of alternate pasts. Um, it's about recovering us. Uh, I mean, I was just at a, a symposium uh, where people were talking about uh, 360 films and and VR as being kind of childlike in a sense of play and and sort of inviting this kind of regression. So I'm just sort of struck by by that. Um, uh, and it may be my own bias of looking at history and historiography kind of mm -hmm. in digital context that maybe I'm particularly aware of this, but it, it, it certainly seems to have become more salient. And I think that it, as a, as a tool, VR um, does a lot to not fix, but it does a lot to engage. Um, my, my graduate students just read this article. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. It's called Theater Squared, Theater History in the Age of Media uh, by one Sarah Bajung. Um, which is uh, from 2007. Seven, yes. So it's way, a classic. But it is a classic <laughs> in the making, already made. Um, but talking about how um, various uh, digital media uh, tools distort theater history and how that makes it difficult to, or it just complicates how we're accessing those um, moments of the past. And in turn, one of the distortions is spatial. And I think that VR doesn't necessarily fix it, maybe just adds kind of new, more minor distortions, but there's very much a way that the flattening of theater into 2D media um, can be expanded mm -hmm. with this, um, with, with using tools like this. And this project, vSpace, was an excellent mm -hmm. um, example of thinking about that. And thinking about it architecturally, because there aren't moving um, pieces mm -hmm. in, the, in the experiment yet. Um, and I kind of liked that, in part because that's where nausea, VR nausea, really kicks in, is when there's stuff moving oh, okay. in within a VR experience. If you don't get the kind of, it's the frame rate, just calibrated just right, and it's, it's nausea city. Right. But this is, um, it's a really kind of peaceful and contemplative way to move through and be in a space. Yeah, you, like. you can sort of wander around. And I, I did not have a lot of experience in VR. So for me, it was partly getting used to that um, medium and then also engaging with this specific project, which has connections to my own research. So it's, it's just this manifold delight for me. But part of it was you know, you can wander around to different spots in this small theater. You can be on stage, you can be backstage, um, you can be in the sort of, uh, uh, 
um, what's the word, gallery in the back. Um, but you get the sense, you can move your head through space to sort of peek through the plane where the curtains are and see the audience. Um, and so there are all these kinds of, um, I don't know, kinesthetic experiences that you can't create with flat media or a television screen. Like you move your body around to try to get under this beam or um, look around this obstacle and it very much gives you the the sensation of being, a, being in a building. There are uncanny things too because you, the floor is uneven, you can step out into space and Every all the information you're getting visually says that you're about to step off of a platform and fall down three feet, but right. in fact the the carpet is right. You know, it's all one floor that you're really standing on. So it does create a kind of disorientation within it. Um, and I'll say this too that the you know the the choice to have the the kind of imagined image on that snuffbox lid brought to life gets you out of some of the epistemological pitfalls of saying, okay, here's a real space that's historical that we have dimensions of and, and a lot of paper documenting because you put that into the VR machine and then you get those distortions. You get the sense that we're making choices that we believe respond to a concrete actuality in history um, and it hides those distortions or those creative choices. When you're overtly creating a space out of a, a bit of iconography mm -hmm. and you don't make any assertions about there being an actual, a historical actuality that it corresponds to, then you don't have those pitfalls. However, I feel like they should do both. The, the technology and the method of working would allow them to make multiple spaces from this era, um, some based on you know, a robust archival source, some based on, you know, a lot of speculation. And there's no reason to restrict themselves to one or the other. Method. Yeah, I mean, I think also the way that they're continuing to remind you, even when you're in the space, with some production choices, that you're in a constructed digital environment with the flat characters. There's, there are a few people in there who are just flat paper doll characters, but they look like sketches. Mm -hmm. And so by asserting the fact that these are um, not meant to be realistic portrayals of people. Mm -hmm. It reminds you that you're in um, kind of what is a, an educated guess at what this space yeah. might be like. There was another digital project that I saw um, in one of the panels that reminded me very much of some of the same use of digital tools mm -hmm. to assert the, um, the non-realism on purpose in order to make an argument. Um, and that was in the, the pre-1850s panel. And Frank Hilde from um, University of Maryland um, in his uh, Triumph of Isabella uh, um, production that they did where they animated um, these kind of eight panels, these eight paintings from um, 1568 to 1626 that are commemorating uh, the parade of the craft guilds, this gigantic parade that happened in Brussels in 1615. And in uh, Frank's uh, production, they stitched together digitally these eight paintings, giant paintings that are together are 100 feet long, and then they animated the pageant wagons. Um, and then he had live performers kind of interpreting what it might have been like for mm -hmm. these pageants. But what, with projected animations behind it mm -hmm. of the pageant wagons going by that the live audience in a kind of our moment can go and see not only the um, performance, but also this animated installation. And that, that reminded me of some of the similar uses of um, matching the 
tool mm -hmm. to what the aesthetic argument is that vSpace does. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, um, Sarah, you were you were part of the roundtable on public facing scholarship, which I thought was was really great. Um, thank you for plugging the podcast. That oh that, yeah, no, that was uh, that was super fun to 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 engage with and. Um, in my own sort of you know style over substance, but the substance of my co-panelists really I think made up for it. Um, it's really been a, an incredibly rich conference. Um, I wonder, panel, as you kind of look at at what's been programmed, is there anything that you think mm -hmm. uh, that you would have liked to have seen, or that that is missed, or that are there future opportunities that? Because uh, I think at this point you yeah. probably know more here. I mean, I, I'm, of course, yeah. I'm noting that a few people are kind of ca talking about, um, you know, that, that, that race is not as, as ubiquitously kind of taken up, but I, I know yeah. I've heard that from a couple of different well, panels, that, different mean, angles. That, that could be, you mean at this particular Aster? At this particular yeah. Aster, yeah. Well, there's yeah, a yeah. contingent of, of, of Aster members who are at ASA in Honolulu. Um, this was, there was a scheduling, you know, uh, conflict. You could, you can't both go to ASA and Aster. This happens every couple of years. They're always at the same time of year. Sometimes they're in the same weekend. Sometimes we'll, people will, um, you know, do part of Aster and part of ASA, but when it's in Honolulu, A, that draws a lot of people <laughs> because it's a great destination, and and B, um, it's it's really impossible to do part of it. So I don't, I, uh, my sense is that some of our colleagues who work on critical race uh, studies and race and performance are, are at ASA, so that, I think that might be why the conference seems a little bit wider, um, perhaps in terms of subject matter and in terms of participation. Hmm. Um, but we, you know, we were aware of that, um, in planning that we would lose some folks to ASA. Um, but, you know, there was also the fact of the, the cancellation of the 2018 conference in San Diego. And I think we co-chairs and, and the organization were concerned that maybe the Aster would be smaller this year because people wouldn't, I don't know, would, would have been worried that it wasn't going to happen or maybe were upset about the way that the, the, the events unfolded last time. But we actually got a very healthy participation. I think the numbers of registrants are, That's great. are good and good in comparison to past years. I get the sense that people are glad that we're meeting again and, and, so um, that, that feels like a success. It feels like the, the field and the organization has come back um, strong. Um, and so we're glad about that. Uh, um, and there is, I mean, uh, I am really sorry about our, our, you know, scheduling taping time because yeah. at this moment we are missing a really, I think what is a really important plenary that I hope other people are, are enjoying, which is uh, plenary number four, Parisian publics, Arab publics, kicking mules and multiracial musicals. Yeah, Jan Clark's uh, giving a paper yep. on, on uh, 17th century French theater. I should be there to see it. But um, we had to schedule us a time when we were all and actually not yeah, committed. Donatella um, Gale is, is also presenting right now. And, yeah. and I know did some work yesterday um, around uh, activism. So I, there's some there's some really good. There's stuff some here. really good stuff. There's a lot of good theater history. I think, you know, there's a there's a di dynamic going on where the sessions and working sessions, there's there are a lot of good theater historians presenting their work at Aster, but there aren't dedicated sessions or working sessions to different um, historical periods to the extent that I think a lot of uh, theater historians wish there were. So, um, you know, there, I think the pre-1850 working session is a good one, and a lot of good work is being shared there. But, um, 
you know, theater historians, I think, uh, in general, are um, wanting the different historical periods, different um, times and places to be represented so that they can, experts can get together and talk about fields that they know in common. Um, but that, 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 I think, is a dynamic that is Aster in general in recent years as opposed to this particular conference. Hmm. Um, but listen, we should go catch as much of the conference as we can. Um, why don't we wrap this up and, and share our drafts? Uh, listeners to Untap know what our drafts are. Our drafts are, um, I don't know, musings, thoughts, um, uh, projects that are not fully thought out, impressions from our working lives or research lives. Um, uh, Sarah, you want to share a draft with us? Sure. So my draft comes from a uh, uh, comment uh, as part of the field conversations yesterday uh, that I was a part of in terms of grants, fellowships, and awards, um, in which we were talking about how to find uh, certain opportunities, residencies, fellowships, particular to to theater and performance, which are sometimes difficult to track down. And I just wanted to put a plug here, as I did there, for... um, uh, a self-interested reading of other people's acknowledgments page, <laughs> which is to say that that in the acknowledgments you will often find how projects got funding. Mm. Yes, and along with you know various kinds of lists of important people that are also sort of useful to know. And I, I think we do we read acknowledgments too lightly and not maybe often enough, but they're actually quite great sources of information. Um, And so if you are thinking about how to fund a particular research project, I would recommend that you go and find publications, particularly books, uh, by scholars who you are following in in one way or another or that somehow align with your project and look at their acknowledgments page and see, because almost always if there was any kind of external support either from their own home institution or more helpfully others, that will be where it is. And so, yeah, yep. again, just a little plug for the importance of the acknowledgments page. It's a sophisticated research research method. It's a good one. Yeah. That is a great idea, and I'm going to do that forever. <laughs> Elizabeth, do you have a draft to share? I do. Um, you know, in some circles, that's kind of that's kind of an aggressive question. <laughs> what are you working on? <laughs> that's right. Shouldn't you be writing? <laughs> yeah. Is um, your draft done? Is your draft? How's that draft coming? That I'd you like to read about that draft. On the podcast. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I actually have one, so it's fine. Um, so I just had a piece uh, come out um, that uh, Sarah was very helpful with um, in my acknowledgments section for the piece. It was the critical component to my um, video game adaptation of uh, that battle from Macbeth, and that that just came out. And I'm now working on the critical component, similarly that goes along with the spatial computing adaptation of the Agamemnon. Um, that I built. So the way that this side of my work, this this kind of digital side of my work kind of stands apart from the critical theory that I work on, um, which is the, the book, which I won't talk about right now. Um, but in this digital side, I build these uh, adaptations as historiography and dramaturgical look at the source text. And then I'm writing um, kind of companion pieces mm-hmm. um, that are kind of explaining the process and then also the argument that I'm making with the digital design. So I'm working right now on um, the complement to Bitter Wind is the name of the digital experience um, that I built. Um, so I, I built the thing and the thing is built and you can uh, experience it. And now I'm hoping to make a couple trips to the Getty um, 
you know, now that they didn't burn to the ground, which was great for the Getty to not burn to the ground, because I want to go to the villa um, and look at some of the pots that they have there, and then also to kind of be in their space and how they're conceiving of immersivity and talking about antiquity, and that will inform um, kind of the critical side of what I'm working on. Great. And what about you, panel? What are you oh, drafting on oh, these days? my draft. It's also related to my own research. Um, I'm working on this uh, book project on performance and social theory. Uh, with the amount of administrative work I'm doing, it's very hard to keep my head in it. But then in my um, class that I'm teaching on contemporary comedy, we teach, or I teach, um, Henri Bergson's On Humor, a theory, uh, his uh, his essay on the interpretation of the of the comic. And it's if you haven't read it, it's a really great read. Um, uh, sort of classic uh, theory of humor. But in the third chapter, which focuses on character, um, and his examples are largely drawn from plays and dramatic character, um, there's this one passage where he actually makes the jump from uh, uh, theatrical character to social persona. And it's just a paragraph, but he writes, in one sense it might be said that all character is comic, provided we mean by character the ready-made element in our personality, that mechanical element which resembles a piece of clockwork wound up once and for all and capable of working automatically. It is, if you will, that what that which causes us to imitate ourselves. And it is also for that very reason that which enables others to imitate us. So there's this early 20th century moment where a variety of different thinkers, social thinkers like um, Georg Simmel, has some essays on theater and the way that the act, the art of acting sort of blends the social self of the artist into the uh, the imagination of the playwright and Edmund Husserl's writing on um, fant- uh, fantasy and, and image consciousness where he talks about the dividing line between theater and everyday life. Um, and so this sort of struck out to me because it's, it's not social theory per se, but it is one of these sort of pre-Goffman moments where a, a, a thinker philosopher is musing on how you know our character our, our social selves are characters but this notion of the idea of our personality being that which causes us to imitate ourselves I thought is a great notion a hmm. great idea that that's that's how our that's how our personalities are theatrical because we are always imitating ourselves right there's a little mechanical device in being a in being a consistent self so great little little tidbit I thought I think that's fantastic. Well, thank you. Great ending. Thank you very much. Nice Uh, imitation of yourself today, panel. And you as well. (laughs) Thank you. Performing Elizabeth. We appreciate the way each other imitate themselves. Um, So, uh, listeners, thank you for downloading and streaming. Uh, We hope you got to check out Aster, uh, whether you did or didn't. Um, We hope you'll, you'll tune in in the future. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.